Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Thank you for joining us for another episode of JOSPT Insights. Today, we're sitting down with the Wake Forest Pitching Lab to talk about the biomechanics of baseball pitchers, form analysis, and clinical interpretation. We have three guests on the show today, Dr. Kristen Faith Nicholson, a PhD and assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedics at Wake Forest, Mike McFerrin, Wake Pitching Lab coordinator and pitching consultant, as well as someone you'll be quite familiar with, Dr. Garrett Bullock, who joined us on episode 93 to chat about rehabilitating baseball players. He is a former professional baseball player himself, practicing physical therapist and quantitative epidemiologist on staff faculty at Wake Forest. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Let's go first through everybody's role and how you guys all work together. So Kristen, why don't you hit us first? Sure. Thanks for having us. I'm Kristen Nicholson, and I'm the director of the Pitching Lab. So my background is in math and biomechanics. And so we bring pitchers in, or we uh, use this also for the Wake Forest University pitchers. But every pitcher will first go through the functional movement screen, specifically the on-base U movement. So you can see how they move. And then we do range of motion measures of their shoulders and of their hips and some strength measures of their rotator cuff as well as grip strength. We then allow them to do their normal pre-game, pre-bullpen warm-up, whatever that consists of, before doing the 3D markered uh, motion capture assessment. So we put 41 reflective markers on them and then have them pitch all of the pitches in their repertoire. So we can kind of look at both their their fastballs and also also their off-speed stuff as well. And then my role is to produce the biomechanical reports, and then look at all their different mechanics as they're pitching through the different phases, through the different pitch types as well. And so the goal is to give them recommendations based on their biomechanics that might decrease their injury risk or increase their performance. And obviously those two go hand in hand. You can't perform if you're injured. Um, So that's really our, our twofold holistic approach biomechanically to the pitchers. Cool. Okay. Now, Mike, what about you? My role is more to bridge what we do in the lab to what we see on the field with uh, whatever players that we're working with, whether that's someone who comes in to get assessed or, you know, working with the teams who are sending their guys to get assessed or more specifically our team who are bringing guys in to figure out how we maximize their performance while at the same time trying to keep them healthy. So Kristen's job is the, the what of what's happening. She takes the data and basically says, you know, hey, this is what's happening within their delivery. My job is to take that and go, okay, why is that happening? And then how do we make that better? Uh, and educating the athletes specifically on how to do that and how to go about that. So it's about tying everything together and then making sure that uh, you can communicate it in a way and teach it to them in a way that actually starts to show up as efficiently as possible. So we have the the what and the why. And now, Garrett, where do you fit in here? I'm more work behind the scenes. I run a lot of the statistical analysis and prediction models, but I also help interpret from a clinical standpoint when we meet as a large interdisciplinary group, hand in hand with the athletic trainer and other medical professionals, such as the uh, orthopedic surgeon. I want to get into kind of like how we can actually, how, you know, what you guys do can apply to how rehab professionals are going to treat pitchers. So maybe we go through a, like a hypothetical, but before we do that, I think we might need to just a brief review, just in case somebody isn't 
doesn't on the on the top of their head can't think of the pitch, phases of pitching. Can we just do a brief review of those those phases, and then just a couple key things you guys look for in each of those phases? Yeah. So so this is something like we're really particular about the language we're trying to use with athletes because I think there's two ways to look at this, which I think is part of the problem to be honest with you. And that is that we, it seems like the medical side of things and the development side of things or the coaching side of things seem to be two different silos. And we really want to bridge that gap on how to communicate in the same language. Most specifically, are they interpreting the information as a result or are they interpreting it as part of the process for part of the change, right? So I think medically, we look at things and we go, well, this is the symptoms you're having. Here's why you're having those symptoms, but we don't get to the process of why those symptoms are starting to show up. So in terms of phase, my language is going to be a little bit different than maybe Garrett's. Uh, and Kristen and I are, are certainly starting to blend on the same language we're trying to use. So some of the most important things that we look for are, do they separate their pelvis from their shoulders? I think that's probably one of the most important things that you can look for from a performance standpoint, but also from a health standpoint. How do they get to that separation, right? So what, what does their load look like? Are they using the ground to do so? What are their rotational speeds? How fast is everything rotating? And is it is it sequencing the correct way, the kinematic sequence in the right order for what we're looking for? And then lastly, uh, I would say probably the layback phase is of extreme importance, especially when we're talking about elbow injuries. So when the ball goes behind the head and, and gets back to release, what does that look like and how is that measured? And then from there, it's more, I think it's more supplemental. Like what are their arms and legs doing to to help the middle of their body separate and rotate the correct way? And are they set up to do so in a safe manner? So that's kind of how we're looking at it and trying to take uh, take a stab for each individual on what do they do well? What do they not do well? Let's pin what they do well and let's try to work on what they don't do well to see the magic kind of unfold in front of them. From a biomechanical perspective, the phases aren't necessarily like the step. Like if you looked up the phases of pitching, you would get like foot strike and then layback and ball release. We do kind of divide things into events. And so the first one being like their setup when both feet are on the ground and then max knee lift. So when their knee reaches the highest point and then foot contact, then we call it maximum shoulder external rotation or that max layback and then ball release and then kind of follow through or hundred milliseconds after ball release. And so the biomechanics goal is to limit the stress on the elbow and the shoulder. And so for the elbow, we tend to look at this varus torque. So that's the moment kind of on the medial side of the elbow. And that's what we think is related to those uh, UCL injuries and the the Tommy John surgeries. And so we try to recommend mechanics that are going to limit that elbow varus torque. And then for the shoulder, we talk a lot about shoulder distraction force. And so that's the, the overall force on the shoulder that's basically keeping your humerus or your upper arm from pulling out of the the shoulder socket. And so some of the things that that we look at are the things that Mike just recommended, whether or not they're able to separate their hip, their trunk or their shoulders, timing of whether they get into the right positions at the right time, kinematic sequencing. We also look at things like their elbow angle, particularly at that maximum external rotation or that max layback point. Also, their arm angle, whether it's, you know, abducted or or raised above, away from their torso appropriately, things like stride length, whether or not they're using the ground, their ground reaction force. So those are a couple of the the key things that we look at and that we know are associated with those elbow health and and shoulder health uh, issues. 
Can you just apply those keys to like timing? So Mike mentioned like the kinematic sequence. And that's what you guys are looking at. Can you do just do a quick review of what that sequence is? The kinematic sequence, basically the the body is acting like a chain and there's an order to which you should move and rotate. And so specifically kinematic sequencing is talking about your pelvis, your trunk, and then your shoulder and, and your elbow and the order that those things rotate. And so your pelvis should rotate first and then your trunk should rotate and then your shoulder should rotate and your elbow should extend kind of at the same time-ish. And so there are definitely people who have improper sequencing where their pelvis and their torso might reach maximum rotation at the same time or potentially even their trunk rotating faster first before their pelvis is rotating. Mm. And so those timing issues, you disrupt this chain of events. And so the power that they're generating from their, their legs is not transferred successfully through their arm into the ball. And so a lot of times we see if there's this disruption in the kinematic sequencing, then they use their arm to compensate and to produce the the ball velocity all from their arm and their shoulder and their elbow instead of you know, allowing it to transfer up through the, the bigger segments of the pelvis and the trunk. And that's where they get into to issues with causing too much stress. So let's get into that hypothetical situation here. So let's say somebody comes in with posterior shoulder pain, something we may clinically refer to as uh, posterior impingement. And let's say it's happening in that that late cock and that layback phase of the pitch. Let's talk a little bit about the clinical presentation. And if we're breaking down their pitching form, what may be contributing to this issue? And then what can we do to alleviate it? So what usually happens from that is that you have an, un- an unstable glenohumeral joint or you have less Usually in a pitching population, it's more about having less control of the dynamic movement of going from to max external rotation through follow through. That's usually where this happens. You Sometimes these pitchers are more hypermobile, so they're more prone to this type of risk, but not always. It could be just a lack of strength or, or wherever they are, and they just had a massive growth spurt as a teenager in terms of clinical development. In terms of where you want to clear them medically before you allow them to get to the, the Wake Forest Pitching Lab, for example, is that we want to you know, have negative on imaging from uh, Hillsack's lesion kind of issues or some labrum issues or rotator shaft tearing within the subacromial space. And then when we want to go through what we call classic rehabilitation and going through throwing at least so I'd say to 100, 120 to 150 feet, which is what we talked about last time in our podcast, and then be able to throw off the mound, no pain for at least, I would say, 20, 25 fastballs to be able to then get to the point of where we would be comfortable sending them to the biomechanics of the lab. From a medical standpoint as well, we want to clear them for many of the, you know, what we call the consensus risk factors from asymmetry in terms of shoulder range of motion shoulder strength, and then also total body movement in terms of dynamic balance is probably the biggest one from a single leg stance point. Once we move those off the table, and we know that they are good clinically from there, from all, you know, all red flags, at least turning to hopefully at least yellow flags, depending on where they are, but preferably green flags, then we can move to more focusing on the pitching performance side to help them rehabilitate to return to performance. And then ho- hopefully, and during this period, reducing their shoulder forces, probably in this case, probably most ideally within shoulder extraction force to allow them to have the highest pitching velocity but with the low shoulder extraction force. From the clinical, now I'll turn it over to the, uh, the more performance and biomechanical side. From a biomechanics perspective, some things that might cause that posterior 
impingement would be, you know, at that max layback phase if their arm is too low. So if they're below kind of 90 degrees so that that humerus is not in line with the shoulders, that can cause some of that that impingement and that pain. They have poor, we call it horizontal abduction, but the ability to kind of pull the humerus back behind the shoulders and load the scap that could cause some impingement there. Or if their trunk rotates too early, which then causes the arm to lag behind, and that might cause some of that pinching you know, back there as well. And so aside from you know, strength discrepancies and bony anatomy discrepancies, Garrett kind of mentioned that you could be cleared for first. Those are some of the mechanics that might be causing some of those shoulder issues. And then I can let Mike talk to what you might do to correct some of those issues and in a, in a better position. Tristan gave many good examples of things that we look for, checkpoints, especially when they're experiencing pain. There's always a reason they're experiencing pain. It's never for no reason, right? And the two main factors we we seem to find most consistently is their mechanics, number one, which is the things that Kristen is is talking about. And also what what Garrett's talking about in terms of are they impinging anywhere? Are they limited like genetically or, or biologically, but also in their movement patterns? Like how are they sequencing and ordering their movements in a way that is going to allow for energy transfer through the body as efficiently as possible and as powerfully as possible? And the amazing thing seems to be that they happen simultaneously, the power and the uh, the efficiency in which they move. So to bring it back to the kinematic sequence for a quick second to help understand this point, I, I think one of the best analogies that we try to use to visualize how this works is if you had five dominoes lined up on a table and you wanted those five five dominoes to fall in order, and you'd obviously hit one of them and allow that energy to transfer through, right? But most guys are coming in with their dominoes scattered across the table. So their energy is not going to transfer through that sequence until you line them up first. And that's kind of our first goal. And when things are not lined up and you're trying to add more force into the equation, you're just tugging on those dominoes in a way that's that's causing stress to the body. So that's how we look for it in the mechanical sequences. Is everything getting tugged on or is everything set up to flow through smoothly? And then we we kind of make our assessment for how we're going to change your moving patterns or adjust or whatever we need to do from that point. And then the second factor is volume how much they're throwing. And I think the baseball world is very focused on this point. Every single kid that we come in talks about his innings that he threw or how many pitches he threw in an outing, or they're very, very conscious of volume right now in baseball, which I think is a great thing. But if you're moving within a stressful sequence, the volume is still going to cause stress. So you just add less stress over the course of time because you're adding less reps into that sequence, right? So you really got to hammer both. And I think that's the side that baseball really needs to focus on is what are the mechanics that are causing guys to feel stress, eliminate those first, and then volume becomes less of an issue and something that you can more easily factor in over time the right way. I do think we've done a better job of really getting the message out about pitch counts and about volume, especially with repetitive activities in baseball and pitching to help limit that volume. But we don't have as much disseminated knowledge when it comes to breaking down pitching form and it's not an easy thing to break down. And so I'm sure there are clinicians listening to this to say, okay, this pitching lab sounds amazing, but you know, what can I do if I don't have a pitching lab, what can I do when I'm looking at a pitcher that has shoulder pain to help break down the form that they have, pick apart what may be contributing to their pain and then how can I help give them cues to fix that? Obviously, I'm sure many people come into your lab with a variety of different pains and form issues, but I imagine that there's probably some common ones that you see a lot, some low-hanging fruit that you would recommend that listeners really make sure they check out first. 
it's so complex. And it, I think people are under the impression that you need a lab like this and data like this to really grasp and understand the problem fully. And it certainly helps. And it's certainly not getting old, you know, having this amount of info to be able to help. I think the best piece of technology is, is a camera. I think video is the best way to understand this. And when you really think about it, like all our, our tech is, is looking through the lens of a camera. It's really just teaching us what to look for. Uh, and it's being more precise on how to how to measure it, obviously, and, and go about what we're looking at. But I, I think if we use data to know what to look for in video, that's really the key to bridging this kind of gap. And then, of course, the question is, well, what, what exactly are we looking for? And I want the shoulders to rotate and I want the arm to unfold in a way where it's literally just the end of a whip getting pulled through by the body. So another analogy, if you're going to fling a rubber band off your finger, you hold your front finger still and then you pull the rubber band back and you just let it go. And the elastic reaction flings the rubber band over your finger. But what I think what a lot of guys are doing by the way that they're moving is they're pulling the rubber band back and they're trying to throw the rubber band over their finger in the direction they want to go in. So by doing that, they're not allowing that natural elasticity within the body to, to work and to pull the arm through. And when, it, when the rubber band lets go, it collapses much faster right, than you could by doing it over your finger. And it goes more consistently in the right direction and you're doing less work. So when you're applying this to how guys move, it's really important to understand, okay, well, how do I get the body to cause an elastic reaction? And how do I make sure my upper body is set up in a way that's going to allow for the easiest transfer of that energy? We look for grounded separation. Uh, we're really big into, is, is he starting his front leg block. So if you're looking on video, I look for when the femur starts to come back into the body. So when it stabilizes on the ground and then starts to stabilize all the rotation from the pelvis up, I want to see how early that's happening. And if it's happening before the pelvis trunk or shoulders begin to leak, then I know that that kinematic sequence is going to start to uncoil going up the chain and the shoulders should get rotationally whipped through. So when we look for a guy with shoulder pain, in addition to everything that Chris and Garrett were talking about, I look mechanically for are they separating their hips and their shoulders after they start to block or are they doing it beforehand? And if they're doing it beforehand, it usually means the shoulder is forcing itself to catch up to release point and then try to decelerate itself after you release. And that's just working overtime on every single throw, right? So you're applying double the amount of energy. So with the shoulder, I would say that's the main thing in addition to the height and the position of the arm and, at foot strike. For the elbow, for me, it's, is there a layback within 90 degrees all the way from when they begin, when the ball begins to fall back behind their head to release? And there's more factors to that, but we see a vast majority of guys just in subjective feedback that the stress in their elbow comes when their arm is outside 90 degrees at foot strike. So that when they begin to rotate, it's a, it's a wide rotation from their center of rotation, which is their spine. So you want to keep the ball as close to the center of the spine as possible. So those are usually the two checkpoints for those two injuries. Okay. So I want to repeat this because you dropped just a couple terms that I wasn't familiar with. So when your foot hits the ground, you said you, when your femur is coming back into your pelvis. So it, like when you start to in, internally rotate on that, the foot strike leg. And then, so you're looking, so then you want your pelvis to rotate before you're drunk. That's a big one. Okay. And then keeping your elbow at 90 degrees until it passes your head. You wanted to start there, but you also, so Kristen refers to this one a lot. It's called forearm flyout. It's just kind of the, the classic term that we use within the industry, at least. And that's when you start at 90 degrees, but then it might cast outside at 90 degrees as you rotate. And that's where we see a lot of stress occur too. That is fantastic. Those are some good things that we can pull and like, hey, I can look at a video and I can look for the pelvis and that elbow. And I can at least like start there but without having to go into the lab or anything. Is there anything else that 
about biomechanics of pitching that need to be considered when a rehab professional is designing a rehab program? I think the biggest thing that we're trying to convey through this whole podcast is really how it's it's more than just the clinician trying to rehab and return the, the athlete to sport. And, you know, we're using baseball as the kind of the example here is that, you know, so like within this whole podcast, like I've talked some, Kristen's talked some, Mike's talked some, and we each have our own skill sets that we're really good at and where our points of view are coming from. So like, I think about the only thing I care about are injuries and they'd never get injured again. Kind of thing. Mike, Mike wants them to have an under three year A and also stay on the field. I, I tell everyone, it's like, long as you stay, long as you don't get injured again, I'm good. Just from our different perspectives, but you need all those perspectives to have the best experience and the best outcome for that athlete. And, you know, so like if you have an athlete that was a starter and then they get injured and then they return, return to sport, but they, but now they sit on the bench and, you know, if they're 15 years old, that's, that's not enjoyable to them anymore. And they're not, they're a completely different athlete compared to I'm a starter. I get hurt. I went through this rehab and I went, saw the PT biomechanist and the pitching coach and they all work together they all talk together about making our best plan and then i came back and and hopefully became the same type of athlete i was before maybe even a little bit better i think that's the biggest thing i want to take away to the listeners here is about how you need to when when someone comes injured it's it's not just about you in a silo it's about you and the colleagues if you you know have differential diagnoses but even more importantly you're talking to the parents you're talking to the athlete you're talking to the coaches and strength coaches involved with that athlete or whatever level that is. That's a theme that has come up multiple times on this podcast is how important it is to work with everybody around you, especially if you like parents are a big one in their parents and coaches, just because like you said, priorities are a little bit different. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about that athlete, but the priorities of that athlete um, are a little bit different. So being able to come together and speak the same language is going to be really key to that. Yeah. We all have slightly different goals. Garrett's is, is health and Mike's is, you know, performance. And and I'm kind of in the in between trying to figure out kind of efficiency here. Like how do they pitch to the highest performance while avoiding getting hurt? And we definitely all need to work together and consider all the parties to, to make that happen. Back in PT school, we had a wonderful professor, Dr. Gupta, who was an orthopedic surgeon for um, foot and ankle. And she said, the eye sees what the mind knows. And I think that is very, very true here, specifically with uh, when you're analyzing and looking at something as complex as a pitch. There's so much going on that you really only see it if you know what you're looking for. So thank you for sharing your experience, your knowledge, uh, your wisdom with us, with all of our listeners. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to Joey's PT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.